0: Hail and well met. You must be today's passengers. Well, welcome aboard, welcome aboard. Your cabin is right this way. You'll find it all well-stocked, ready for you. If I can just check your tickets, yes? Okay, everything seems to be in order. And who am I? Well, I'm Drew Broussard. I'll be your host, your guide, your tour guide as we embark on an intrepid voyage, a voyage into genre. I love a short story collection. I mean, who am I kidding? Clearly, I love books in general of all kinds. But there is a particular pleasure and challenge to a short story collection. I think you probably know what I mean by challenge if you're anything like me. And it's the question of how do you read it? Do you read it straight through without breaking it up at all? Do you jump around in the table of contents? Do you read a story here and then put it down and go read something else and then come back over several months? Do you read it aloud in the car? I don't know. These are the things that I think about and I kind of do all of them. There will be no definitive answers here today. It's one thing, too, to think about a collection by a single author, but an anthology featuring multiple authors, now there, anything goes, in the most exciting of ways. Isn't it wonderful to open up a book and see, ooh, here's a favorite author of mine, I know I'm going to get to read their story, but then to discover bookending that story, new favorite authors, people whose names you've never heard of, but now you are destined never to forget. So, you guessed it, today we are thinking about curation and collection, and we're starting with two anthologies, brand new, featuring a ton of voices who are brand new to me, who I definitely can't wait to see what they do next. Regina Kenyu Wang is a writer, researcher, and editor, currently pursuing her PhD as a part of the Co-Futures Project at the University of Oslo. She has written and published science fiction, nonfiction, academic essays in Chinese and English. She's been published in Italy, in Germany. She's co-edited a special issue of Vector. And she is the co-editor, along with Yu Chen, of The Way Spring Arrives and Other Stories, a collection of Chinese science fiction and fantasy in translation from a visionary team of female and non-binary creators. This collection lives up to its subtitle. It is truly visionary. Everything about it, the collaborative editorial process, the scope of the writing, the fact that the editors decided to include essays, and those essays are wound throughout the collection, not just included at the end for the people who like the nerd stuff. It is an open-hearted, forward-thinking collection. And when I started talking with Regina, I had to ask the obvious first question. Where did the idea get its start?
1: Actually, it was during a launch discussion between Lindsay and Rossi from Tor and Tor.com and also Emily and I. It was back in the spring of 2019. We were talking about doing something together and uh, then maybe starting an anthology of all women and the non-binary creators, all of us got excited about the idea. So we went back to report to our institutions and then got this full support uh, from both Tor.com and also from StoryCon. And so from then, we've been working together on this anthology very closely and interactively. Um, the whole selection process was done between the Chinese and the US side. Like on the Chinese side, we invited Yu Chen, who is another experienced editor in both speculative fiction and the mainstream fiction in China. So she did the first round of screening of stories, and then she will share with me and discuss with me. And then we provide the recommendations to Lindsay and Rozi, and then they will see which stories interested them. So that's kind of like how we started. And we've been working very closely together since then.
0: That doesn't sound like too many other collection processes that I've heard of. It sounds even more collaborative. That shines through. There is a marvelous feeling of everybody working together. I know that sounds like a silly thing to say because of course <laughs> that's what you're doing, but it's really cool to hear that it was so deeply collaborative from the start.
1: Yeah, exactly. I think this anthology is unique because it's like a collection of Chinese science fiction and fantasy stories and we translate them into English. I know that have having other anthologies of Chinese science fiction, like Invisible Planets and Broken Stars and the reincarnated giant, which are also great. And they are translated by one or two persons. But for this one, the editorial team work together closely and also we try to invite different translators and match them with different stories. We try to see the style of translators, the voice of them, and match them with the most suitable stories in Chinese. So in This way, I guess it's to showcase not only the richness of the original stories in Chinese, but also the richness in the voices of translators. And this whole idea of this collection is to bring out the historically marginalized voices to the readers. So not only those women and non-binary authors, but also the translators who have been like more behind the stage. So we are very happy having everyone working together at an equal position and showcase this whole book to the readers.
0: I love that there are so many, not only there are so many new authors to me, but also so many new translators. There are a few names who I recognized But it it feels like you kind of get a two for one a little bit. The collection is such a bounty, which I think is really fun. And I want to know more about what you were saying about matching up translators and stories.
1: So we decide the table of contents first. So we decide which stories we are going to translate first. And then we reach out to potential translators and ask their interest. So like during the process, I try to look at the background of translators. For example, Mel or Lara, she has uh, translated a lot of online fiction uh, from China. And uh, some of them have that... uh, background, which is kind of like those Daoist uh, online novels. So. Like when I saw that, I think mm, she might be suitable to translate the story by Count E, which is about this little fox and try to like do the Taoist alchemy and be a kind of immortal. So I think mm, that background might match. Another example is R.F. Quan, and she is an author herself and like a kind of young but also established, talented author. And also we match her with Wang Nuonuo, who is also a young and talented author in China and well known for her writing. Actually, we found that after like we put them together, match them up, we found that both of them have studied at Cambridge. So that is also kind of coincidence. So like during the process, there are some particular things we consider, but also there are some unexpected coincidence that pop up, which is very interesting for us.
0: It's real life magic, which is particularly fitting for a collection of speculative and fantastical stories. Speaking of Rebecca, she also, there's an essay in here. And I really, I so appreciated the five essays that were included in this collection. I can't think of another fiction collection off the top of my head also includes essays, particularly in the way that these set so much context for a reader who, regardless of how much facility they have with Chinese speculative fiction, it's always helpful to learn a little bit more context as an American reader. And I wanted to know more about the decision to include essays in the book.
1: Actually, it was not the first to include essays. Ken Liu has also included essays in Invisible Planets and Broken Stars. So when we were working on this anthology from the very beginning, we know that, okay, we also want to have some essays. So we reached out to the five Atheists asking them to share their knowledge. You will notice like some of them are more about the general background of speculative fiction writing in China, but some of them are about like the translation techniques and the skills. And also one thing unique in this anthology is that we didn't put the atheist in the back of the book but we put them in between and they kind of serve as a thread. And so when you enjoy some stories, having some direct feelings or sensations about the context, then you get a little bit more like analysis or like background. So I think these essays are really an uh, organic part of this uh, anthology instead of something that had to be there or like we forced to be there.
0: Yeah, it. It does feel, it feels important that they are there. I'm very glad that you all decided to mix them into, instead of putting them at the very back and sort of being like, oh, you know, in case you want this, it's there for you. Instead, it was just as important as the stories, which I think made me appreciate the stories more, too.
1: Yeah, I'm happy to hear that. And uh, I have to say, like, the order of the table of contents come from Lindsay and Rossi. I think they've really, like, done a great job of ordering all those stories and essays. I think, like, those stories and essays kind of form narrative by themselves.
0: How did you know or where were you looking for the initial stories that came together to make up this collection?
1: So I am a writer of mostly science fiction and the Chinese science fiction community is pretty small. So I basically know all of the authors and also I've been working with and on on the Chinese science fiction translation project. I did translate some of my own stories but not that many, so I can't claim to be a translator. But I do work with translators and authors a lot to bring their works into English. So for the science fiction authors, I reach out to them and ask them to share stories. And for the fantasy stories or like those magical realism stories actually sometime for some of the authors i had to reach out to them via social media and saying hey we are working on this anthology and i admire your work and could you share some of your stories and then got some positive answers from like those authors that i have loved for years since my like teenager years that is a very like good experience
0: I was reading about the work that you were doing at Arizona State when you were an Applied Imagination Fellow. And there was something in the synopsis of your Her Imaginations project about exploring how creators promote non-dualistic thinking in their work as a way to reframe conflicts and imagine a more inclusive, harmonious future. And that's such an elegant, beautiful phrase on its own. And I would love to hear more about where you hope to take your work, whether that's as an editor or as a writer or as an artist in general,
1: Mm, Thank you so much. Yeah, actually, like, this idea came from my research because I'm currently uh, working on works by mainly women authors from Chinese science fiction to look at uh, the gender and environmental perspective in their works. So, like, this non-dualistic thinking mainly comes from my research work perspective. And I have also been trying to apply it to my, like, writing and also, like, in general editing work. In writing, I think I try to portray a world where human and non-human do not have that specific boundary. I try to like make it more blurry boundary. That is particularly referring to the paradigm of yin and yang from the ancient Chinese cosmology. There are like the white side and the black side, but there are White in black and the black in white, those two sides are never stable. They are not hierarchical and they are always interdependent and interacting with each other. So that is kind of a world building that's more harmonious and with less oppression, which I also observe in some of the stories in Chinese science fiction. So I try to use that thinking to analyze the works of Chinese science fiction authors, especially women authors, and also try to use this thinking for some of my own stories. For example, the one I wrote for another project of Arizona State University's Center for Science and Imagination, I wrote a story called The Cyber Castuda Manifesto, (laughs) which describes a kind of like digital being that is co-living with human beings and play with that idea a little bit.
0: This is a big question, and we can take it in whatever direction you'd like. What do you see the future looking like for female and non-binary science fiction writers in China, for Chinese speculative writing in general? for the increasing cross-pollination between Chinese and Western writing. What does it look like to you from the point of view of both a writer and editor?
1: That is a pretty interesting question. I was actually just listening to a lecture on China Futurism by Professor Wu Yan, who is one of the leading scholars in Chinese science fiction studies. So he has been talking about the different kinds of futurisms in Chinese science fiction writing. And Also, especially for women and then binary creators, I've been like doing the interview series. not only authors, but also editors and entrepreneurs of women in Chinese science fiction for that Her Imagination project. So I also asked them similar questions. And I think the simple answer is that we kind of expect to see women, non-binary or other marginalized groups play various roles or different roles in those science fiction stories instead of being someone to be saved or someone that is oppressed or suffering. They can be scientists, they can be astronauts, they can be engineers, and they can also be artists, they can be moms, they can be anyone. So I guess that is something that the American or anglophone science fiction has already moved away from this stage of gender poetry, but still in the current Chinese science fiction, we still see a lot of stereotypes, not only on like women characters, but also on like men characters. So there are like more rich characters, but we still want more. So by creating those stories, we manage to have the future readers see that there are multiple possibilities. There are unlimited possibilities. Everyone can have a role and have different roles they want in the future that is portrayed in science fiction stories. So I guess that is something like the main purpose that I'm aiming for.
0: It's one of my favorite things about speculative fiction, science fiction in particular, I think. Th- the power that it offers us to be able to imagine a different world. And by imagining that different world, maybe make somebody else believe that our world could look like that. There's something really powerful to that. Exactly. And it makes me, it's not lost on me that this collection came out and is being celebrated in America at a moment where tensions between China and America on a geopolitical scale are high, let's say. Do you have hope that storytellers everywhere across the world, do you, do you, see, do you see that hopeful positive change starting to bubble up through the stories into the popular culture, if that makes sense? I don't want to be so reductive as to ask, can fiction change the world?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I, I believe so. I totally believe so. Because like story really have the power to influence people because story is the way we learn about the world. Of course, there is like real life kind of mundane life we live through, but story always portrays that possibility that we can aim for. And for speculative fiction especially, because we write so much about the aliens, like those people or those species or those beings in general that are different from us. So by reading speculative fiction, you kind of have to be able to emphasize with the others. So if you can emphasize with the others in those stories, you We'll also learn the ability to empathize with other people from different countries, different cultures. So and even if there is a tension between governments, I believe that the people shouldn't bring that like tension as a war between the possibility of different cultures communicating with others. So I guess, yeah, that, yes, my simple answer is yes. I, I hope so and believe so. And speculative fiction especially have that power.
0: Sherry Renee Thomas and Ogunichoe Donald A. are two-thirds of the editorial team behind the new collection, Africa Risen. Together with their third collaborator, Zelda Knight, they have put together an incredible collection. A new era of speculative fiction featuring stories from Africa and the African diaspora that are fantasy, science fiction, horror, magical realism. Any sort of genre styling that you can imagine is found in this collection with an incredible breadth across 32 stories. Cherie, of course, is the editor of the magazine of fantasy and science fiction. She was the editor of the World Fantasy Award-winning anthologies Dark Matter and Dark Matter Reading the Bones, and Ogunichue, or Og, won the Namo Award for Best Short Story by an African in 2019, the 2020 Otherwise Award, and he co-edited, along with Zelda Knight, the Dominion anthology from a few years ago. I spoke with Cherie and Ogunichue about this new collection how they put it together, what their hopes and dreams were, and why it was important now to say that Africa is not rising, but that it has risen.
2: I've encountered Ogini way and Olivia, or Zelda Knight's work from their wonderful anthology Dominion. That's when they first came on my radar. I really loved reading the book. It was so much fun. And it reminded me so much of the joy and the anxiety and the nervousness I felt I was Editing the very first Dark Matter anthology in 1998. And then we did the second volume, Dark Matter, Reading the Bones, in 2004. And to me... The uh, Dominion anthology was bringing together writers that I, and others, I'm sure, had only dreamed of 20-something years ago. If I could have, I would have had more than Nadia Okorafor in (laughs) the first volumes of Dark Matter. I would have loved to have other African writers, but I wasn't a part of that community. I didn't have a footprint in publishing, and so it wasn't as if I had a huge name that people would know, you know, to send work to me. And also, just to be quite frank, it seemed to me that Nadia and maybe a few other writers Writers were the only African writers at the time who were consciously writing science fiction, proud to call it science fiction, and publishing it as such, right? And so that community wasn't exactly as present as we see it today. Fast forward, here we are with Dominion, and I'm going, wow, this is a groundbreaking collection. To me, it was. Because it showed that there are so many other writers and communities from around the world, around the African diaspora, who are definitely engaged in writing science fiction, fantasy and horror and are doing it at such a high level and doing it beautifully. That was my introduction to these two great writers and great editors.
3: And OG, what about you? I'll start off by saying that speculative short fiction was not exactly a huge thing on the continent. Publishing itself is not a huge thing, but you can sort of get a couple of people to come together to say, okay, let's publish a few books, you know, which usually turn out to be long-form work because the model of speculative fiction and publishing generally in the industry favors longer fiction, you know. So short fiction, it's generally not the most established form and in africa well it was a lot less established so when zelda came up with the idea to do the dominion anthology I got involved, but the truth is Sherry was the first big landmark for short fiction that we saw. So naturally, I had my eyes set on reaching out, connecting. I sort of had a pragmatic take on things. If you're going to embark on a journey, you have to consult the elders, the people who have worked that path before, you know. And I was sort of unofficially the PR for Dominion. So I reached out to Sherry. Uh, we connected. She was very welcoming. She Helped us get funded, promote Dominion, you know, all for free out of the kindness of her person. So after Dominion, which was a huge success, I naturally reached out to her to see if we could whip up something. And another thing I'll point out again, I mean, she was the landmark, like I said, the largest, the most visible landmark for speculative short fiction anthologies. We always refer to Dark Matter. As a matter of fact, Dark Matter had a proposed third volume which was never done but I saw the page for it on Wikipedia
2: yeah it was gonna be Africa Rising and then the world had came history changed and I was like no we can't call the book Africa Rising we're gonna get slammed <laughs> but I was like oh you know that was almost 20 something years ago
3: yeah so I reached out and I was like oh Ooh. you know you had this vision and it's still viable and why don't we do something about it and so Africa Rising was born Although I am curious, would you ever have gone back to it?
2: I had been asked a couple of times because there were some writers I reached out to to contribute to it. But then when I looked around, and there was, like you said, there's Evonne Hartman's collection, and some other writers had done books. There's a magazine. I felt like perhaps it was unnecessary at that point. I felt like what I had envisioned for the third volume of Dark Matter was already in the world. You know what I mean? That community mm-hmm. was already there, and it it seemed like it should be led by African writers. So. I was pretty okay with it not happening. But then here we are, Africa risen.
0: <laughs> yeah. what? I like that you all have a deep history with working on anthologies and collections. You're both fantastic writers in your own right, but you also both have this eye for bringing writers together, bringing a community together. And I'm wondering if either of you, both of you, would share some thoughts about what you see the role of collections like this being in the genre landscape today, or however you sort of want to think about it.
3: I feel like my relationship with Zelda is the quintessential black African diaspora continental connection. Zelda had an ideal, had a drive that I was on a wave of, you know, at a certain point, and it also turns out that I had a certain approach. I had a certain energy that was also something that was substantial. So when we put them together, it became something that blew up into dominion which was able to impact both communities so i feel like both parties all the communities have something to offer and we often have the erroneous view that each party is doing well and you know they're doing fine and they might not appreciate you know you know we 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 have this tentative approach you know, to working in together. You know, so I feel like if we bridge that gap more often, we might create magic, like what's happening in Africa. Reason it's simply magical. It's simply beautiful. I don't know if I would have been able to do it with you know just people from my community. There are things that Cherry brings to the table. You know, her experience, deft handling of things, and navigation of the industry. You know that we just can't get elsewhere, you know, there are very few people on the continent who have that experience. I see the future being in how we combine or come together to work on projects, you know, and I I wish that this had happened much earlier, you know, would have created way more magic. Instead of just feeling like we're doing well, we're doing well, (laughs) you know, not that we're doing badly, but we could do much better.
2: Yeah, for me, the short fiction form is a masterful form, right? Which is why I love it. I know that's why OG loves it. For me, anthologies are like the heart of our genre. It's where you are able to find and discover new voices that you might not have found before. It is a place for experimentation. It is a space for emerging writers to begin building an audience. And it's an opportunity for readers to get a taste of a multitude of ideals and aesthetics and themes and ways of storytelling and takes you around the world and across time, across geographies. So for me, short fiction, especially ones that are original volumes, like original short stories, that is where you can get a peep into what the is going to hold. Um, some of those writers that were in Dark Matter were unknown to most readers at the time. And now they are doing beautiful work in the genre and have influenced so much. One of the writers, Pam Knowles, indirectly helped inspire Matt Ruff's Lovecraft Country from a blog that she wrote about being a fan, a Black fan in the genre and, and the you know, in the different experiences that you have. You know, I've got... Pulitzer Prize winners that came out of that collection, National Book Award finalists, New York Times bestsellers, science fiction grandmasters, I mean, just people who have just gone on to do amazing work. And that's what you hope for when you're editing a literary journal, a magazine, an anthology. You hope that the writer that you find over the transom or in the slush pile, the unsolicited writer who came to your open call. And that's what I see the role of anthologies like Africa Risen doing. I'm hoping that some of these writers who may be new to readers are able to do other great work and like OG said, collaborate on other projects that have not yet yet been imagined because we do have a lot of different skills and resources. I feel like we are going to have to look ahead after this book is published, maybe five years, and see where some of these writers are in terms of their own work and the new projects that they create. But definitely the role of short fiction is the role of discovery.
0: Oh, I love that you say that because I found myself... There are authors in this collection who I have loved for a long time. And then there are authors who are brand new to me. And I do. I have them in my little notebook to to, <laughs> to wait to see where their name pops up next. And it, you kind of already answered this, Cherie, but I'm curious about... This is a collection of all new stories that you all went out and you got new stories for this collection. and And the difference between doing that and doing sort of a more retrospective anthology, or even, even a survey of the current scene anthology, you know, your year's best or something?
2: I will say this, we received a lot of submissions, and Zelda, OG, and I, we made our list of stories that we really loved, and then stories that we liked, and then stories that were on the border, like if we had to, you know, if we weren't able to get certain stories, because sometimes things happen. And so Africa Risen is a culmination of us comparing those lists and talking it out and working through the stories and thinking about the kinds of stories that we wanted to have. So I will say this, there were other stories we absolutely did enjoy and love and they could probably be in another volume and some of these writers and the same thing happened with dark matter and i suspect probably happened with dominion sent us multiple stories but what i love about this collection is that you get not only stories that are like science fiction off earth science fiction or on earth science fiction But you also get fantasy stories that are not just dealing with African folklore or African mythology or African spiritual traditions, but also fantasy that takes us in other directions. There's also some pretty scary stuff in here. Yeah. (laughs) Pretty (laughs) disturbing stories that are deliciously weird, wonderfully weird and deliciously disturbing. And I mean, if we included a map, like if there were a map in the volume, it's taking you to different parts of the continent of Africa and the diaspora right? One of our writers, he's African, but he lives in Russia. You just have people from all over the world who are telling you stories. And some of them are rooted in their particular culture. Some of them are rooted in other cultures. And some of them are completely new, original, that comes out of the, the realm of their imagination, right? And I feel like it's stories that that expand our idea of what you can do in science fiction and fantasy.
0: I felt so much of that. The breadth was so incredible. And it felt like there were even new cross-pollinations of micro-genres that were popping out of this collection, like seeds. It was really cool.
2: I feel like it expands our sense of who is a part of our fandom, too. Like, who was a part of fandom? I remember in the early days, my first actual science fiction convention I went to was because of Dark Matter. I'd been a science fiction fan all my life, but I, it never occurred to me to go to a con. One, I always feel like I can be marginalized at home for free. <laughs> so why get on the plane, you know? And it's also pretty expensive if it's not, like, in your community, right? Yeah. But we've been contributing to these people's bottom lines for decades, right? We're your fans, too. And often writers in the genre are fans. Right. So I just hope that this puts a little more flesh and bone into the concept of who is a part of these communities. We have writers, you know, African writers in Malaysia who are a part of this book, you know, African-American, Zimbabwe. Canadians, Zimbabwe, you know.
3: Uganda.
2: Uh, Uganda. The community, we're all over the world. And I wish more people who write about the genre, who write and review the genre, who do interviews and things like that, speak to us as if we're part of the community, because we are. We didn't just show up and land on a, you know, come out of an alien ship and drop into the community. Many of us have been a part of the community since childhood. So give us that type of that respect. Discuss it as such. When I was asked to edit the magazine of fantasy and science fiction, which is 73 years old this year I didn't just they didn't have to go and find me you know on another planet and bring me this this specimen And edit I've been a part of this genre professionally since the 90s talk to us as if we're part of the community because we are
3: and we're both nominated for the Hugo Award Best Editor short form we'll both be the first black editors to be nominated for the awards so, I mean, the anthology has some of your most awarded black speculative fiction editors, so it's a treat.
2: We hope the readers love these stories and that you come out with favorite writers that you will follow and support in their next, you know, adventures. Because it's definitely, it's already been an adventure for us editing, you know. And just like when you think about just the geography of it, to be quite frank. There wasn't even systems in place on how to formally pay some of these writers because they've never published writers from these countries before, you know. So to me, it's a pioneering experience already from there. And hopefully it'll be an easier experience for other writers in the future.
0: I loved in the introduction, Africa is not rising. It has risen. What's next? Do you think in addition to people suddenly finding all of these new authors who they're going to love and follow over the course of the coming decades? But as you were putting this together, did you see a trend that you're sort of like, oh, I want to keep my eye on this? Or was there something that got you excited about about what's coming down the line?
2: I don't know if I see any trends yet. I feel like I'm still too close to this volume. It hasn't got cold for me yet, if that makes any sense. It's not even out yet. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> it's not even in print yet. So the stories are still very fresh in my head. I don't feel equipped to make any grand predictions on what we'll see next, other than we'll see more. We will certainly see more.
3: Mm, Yeah. Oji, what about you? I'll be so bold as to say that this is the future, you know. I feel like a lot of the authors are people that we are already familiar with. Africa Reason just basically showcases a lot of, you know, some of the most brilliant, authors from different communities. You're going to find there's a whole group of academics, you know, in the book that have their own segment. There's a whole group of established, already established writers who, you know, despite having been there. Like Cherry said, a lot of people still might not be familiar with them. You know, then there's a group of fresh new writers, you know, who are very new, very young. And there's also a number of people. It's literally their first publication. So there's something from everywhere here. You know, there's a bit of everything. So whatever it is you're looking for, if you're looking for the already established, if you're looking for the young if you're looking for the new if you're looking for the intellectuals you'll find them here
2: when i it's one of those books that i see like with the arcane my guys when i look at it i genuinely smile when i see it i cannot wait for you all to read it listeners go and pre-order this book
0: As I was putting this episode together, I kept using the word curator to think about the editors who I was talking to from these two anthologies. And I know that that word is often used specifically in the context of art museums or museums more generally, but it felt right to bring this idea of curation together with editing. And so it made me think, perhaps to close everything out, why not actually go talk to an art curator? Then I thought about one of the more interesting art museums I think I've ever been to, the Huntington Library in Pasadena, California. I'm lucky enough to have family who lives out there, and my grandmother-in-law, in in fact, was a longtime docent at the Huntington. I reached out to her, and she connected me with Melinda McCurdy, who is the curator of British art at the Huntington. I asked Melinda to talk a little bit about how she approaches the work of curation at the Huntington, and she had some fascinating things to say about her work, the institution's work, their interactions with audiences, and how all of that gets tied up together with that most famous of Huntington paintings, Blue Boy.
4: How I think about it, I am responsible for the maintenance and interpretation of the collection here at the museum and by maintenance I mean not only the care but the display and then interpretation ties into the display as well. I do a lot of in-gallery interpretation so that could be translated to exhibitions or sort of single displays. Let me just start with those because those are kind of what most people think about when you think about what a curator does. One of the projects I worked on over the last few years the interpretation surrounding the conservation of the Blue Boy which is the Huntington's most famous British portrait. I worked Closely with our um, finger paintings conservator Christina O'Connell to develop an in-gallery display, which would not only tell people about the history of the object, but also tie them into what was currently happening to it and how conservation is an important part of museum work that normally people don't see. And so we did this on view in the public space of the gallery and were able to engage people in the actual processes of museum work. People were able to view what was happening to the painting in real time. And then when my colleague was not working on the painting in the gallery, we had a lot of interactive materials that visitors could engage with. So sort of a touch screen here and there that talked about various aspects of the project, the history of the painting, questions we were hoping to answer with our investigation into its materiality, and also fun little things that you could touch a button and the x-ray would show up and show you what was underneath the paint layer that you could see. So to me, that sort of engagement of the public into the ideas that we are actively working on as curatorial staff you know that's one of the more exciting parts of my job it is kind of a movement in museums these days to tear down the walls a little bit and show people what we do. There's a movement towards transparency and all the things that we do, in conservation is something that people normally don't see. We just happen to have this very famous painting that a large portion of our public really wants to see on the wall. They want to know it's always going to be there. So we wanted to be able to have it on view for them as much as possible. As a curator, as a historian of British art, I am 100% okay if Blue Boy is not on view all the time, because it is a British painting. It's probably not our most important British painting. It's probably not even our most important British portrait. Maybe that's blasphemy to say, but it is a painting that's beautiful. It is a highlight of the artist's career. It's a highlight of our collection, but it is one painting, and there are other things that we can talk about. So we did recently send the Blue Boy to London on the 100th anniversary of its acquisition, and in... The that instance, we knew that people wouldn't be happy, some people wouldn't be happy that we did that, and then other people would be happy. It just depends on your perspective, but we wanted to make sure people understood that we were doing it for a reason. There was a real educational opportunity here for us to have the painting be seen in a different context within the collection of the National Gallery as opposed to within the Huntington Collection, and there's a whole publication that came out of it. And then we also, on that same occasion of the 100th anniversary of the acquisition of Blue Boy, we commissioned Kahindy Wiley to do a portrait using Blue Boy as a model. And so that took the place of Blue Boy while it was traveling to London. And it was a revelation for people to see this figure that wasn't Blue Boy. It was a young Black man from Senegal standing in place of Blue Boy and to understand what they were seeing, how it was different, what the different impact of it was versus what they expected to see or what they normally would have seen. I think that was a real great educational experience for people. I hope it was. Museums are institutions of preserved history, but we don't necessarily find ourselves down by that. I think we like to look at things in new ways. And I, you know, as a person who studies historical European art, I have a certain set of materials that I have to work with, but I don't have to say the same stories about it over and over again. We can't just look at the glamour of the portraits and think, oh, that's all there is to it. I think museums are starting to look at their collections in new ways. I'm working on a project that'll look at gender. I'm working on a project that looks at environment and science. So blending those stories with the traditional view of the collections that we have is really it's an exciting way for people to learn something new. I think it's a way for people who may not have found particular things that interesting to get interested in them. My hope is always that people understand that history is something you can learn from and the way we interpret it says a lot about our position in society today.
0: Well, it's hard to believe, but here we are. Time to disembark, at least for a little while. Our latest voyage comes to a close, and I leave you back where I found you. Or not exactly where I found you. After all, part of the point of a voyage is to come back a different person. A different reader, perhaps? Or maybe you just have more books on your TBR, and that's fine too. Thank you for journeying along on this most recent iteration of our voyage into genre. It is strange times out there in the world, somehow stranger than the last time we spoke. But if the incredible breadth of talent on display in these interviews is anything to go by, I have hope for the future. At the very least, I hope to see you again soon. And however and whenever I do, I hope it finds you well, well well-rested, well-read, and enjoying the hell out of whatever adventure you might be on. So, off to get this thing tuned up, put another couple books on the TBR pile, and one way or another, I'll see you soon. This has been Tor Presents Voyage into Genre, a co-production with Lithub Radio. I'm your host, Drew Broussard. Music was by Daniel Anchoni of Evelyn, mixing, mastering, and production, courtesy of Stardust House. Thanks very much to the team at Tor, to Justin Alvarez at Lithub, and to all of you for listening.